0: Joshua 24. And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and called for the elders of Israel, and for their heads, and for their judges, and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor. And they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood, and led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his seed, and gave him Isaac. And I gave unto Isaac Jacob and Esau, and I gave unto Esau Mount Seir, to possess it. But Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. I sent Moses also and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt, according to that which I did among them. And afterward I brought you out, and I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and ye came unto the sea, and the Egyptians pursued after your fathers with chariots and horsemen unto the Red Sea. And when they cried unto the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and brought the sea upon them, and covered them. And your eyes have seen what I have done in Egypt, and ye dwelt in the wilderness a long season." And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, which dwelt on the other side Jordan. And they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, that ye might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and warred against Israel, and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not hearken unto Balaam, therefore he blessed you still. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over Jordan, and came unto Jericho. And the men of Jericho fought against you, the Amorites and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites and the Hittites, and the Girgashites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And I delivered them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, even the two kings of the Amorites, but not with thy sword, Nor with thy bow. And I have given you a land for which ye did not labor, and cities which ye built not, and ye dwell in them. Of the vineyards and oliveyards which ye planted not, do ye eat. Now therefore, fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood, and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for the Lord our God. He it is that brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, and which did those great signs in our sight, and preserved us in all the way wherein we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, even the Amorites, which dwelt in the land. Therefore will we also serve the Lord, for he is our God. And Joshua said unto the people, Ye cannot serve the Lord, for he is an holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If ye forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you, after he has done you good. And the people said unto Joshua, Nay, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said unto the people, Ye are witnesses against yourselves that ye have chosen you the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore, put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you, and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. And the people said unto Joshua, The Lord our God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and took a great stone, and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said unto all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us, for it hath heard all the words of the Lord which he spake unto us. It shall be therefore a witness unto you. Lest ye deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, every man unto his inheritance. And it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being a hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in timnath Sarah, which is in the Mount Ephraim, on the north side of the hill of Gash, And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that overlived Joshua, and which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. And the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, buried they in Shechem, in a parcel of ground which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver. And it became the inheritance of the children of Joseph." And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him in a hill that pertained to Phinehas, his son, which was given him in Mount Ephraim.
1: Let us pray one more time as we open the word. Heavenly Father, again, we come before thee. We ask thee, Lord, that you would help me, Lord, and whatever I have prepared, Lord, that that would uh, be beneficial to anyone here. Father, and ultimately, we ask you that your word would not return void, Lord, but that it would do its work in us. And that is a miracle. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're now entering into this last chapter of Joshua. And I, uh, there'll be one more sermon on Joshua after this. So this is the la- second last sermon on this chapter. And this is the third farewell speech that Joshua has spoken. Uh, it's a farewell speech. You might call it... Uh, almost a a, a wish to the people as well, to his beloved people Israel. The first one we saw a few weeks ago, it was to the eastern tribes. The second one here was in particular to the leadership. And now it is to all the people of Israel in its entirety. Most people think it was just a few years after his last speech. And um, it was also a covenant renewal. And likely, or like they did in in chapter 8, they did a covenant renewal. Moses did the same thing a few times. Um, And uh, then in it, we see him exhorting his people to faithfulness to Jehovah and warning them concerning the deceitfulness of sin and to consider a wholehearted devotion and service to God and to do that with sincerity and truth. Joshua is looking for what David describes in his penitential psalm, Psalm 51, that they had truth in the inward part of them, a heart that was devoted to God. Now, this place, Shechem, it's a special place. It's where God first came to Abraham all those years ago by the oak of Morah, and he promised there the land to Abraham and his offspring. Abraham was just there by himself and one family, and he built an altar there. Also, he bought by this place that grave for Sarah uh, for money, and um, it was in the centrally located in Canaan, in the, close to those mountains of Gerzizim and Ebal, where they had that first covenant renewal a few chapters ago. So it's an historic place, and Joshua takes them back to where it all began. There were great beginnings and endings at this place, as you saw Joshua dying there as well. It's a historic place and occasion, and it is Joshua's last recorded words to his beloved people. And we would do well to ponder what he has to say from to his people by this faithful shepherd and servant. Notice in verse 1 the writer makes note that this meeting was called by God was not an ordinary meeting but at the meeting they presented themselves before God Coram Deo, before the face of God. Likely it's a reference to the Ark of God that would have been there and where God dwelt and God was a silent witness to all what they said and what they did in this last chapter. It was a Solemn occasion, yet joyful occasion, one filled with reflections of the past, warnings for the future, and assurance of God's nearness in the in the ages to come. Last year, I think it was in June sometime, it was that the late Queen Elizabeth II made her last appearance on the balcony at Buckingham Palace. And all the commentators and the journalists and all the people standing there knew. What was happening? It was probably the last time they would see her, and they saw her declining health, her increasingly feeble frame, and they knew that she would belong to the ages fairly quickly. And it was a memorable occasion for those that would have been there. Same here with Joshua. He was now 110 years old. Well, past the age of many people in that time, the ages started to decline. And he had one more speech yet to give to his people. And the people could get one more glimpse of him. You can think of the little ones who were brought to this speech. They could be lifted up on Father's shoulder and they could point to this man, this man that had been there all along from the Exodus, worked with Moses and with Aaron. And they could say, there's a a faithful man, a man that stood sometimes against the stream. Even though he was by himself or with a few others, he would do what is right. And um, it was a great occasion. Jonathan Edwards, when he had uh, gotten sick through a a, a smallpox vaccine, uh, he was getting more sicker and sicker, and his condition was worsening. He called for his daughter, Lucy, that cared for him. And he said to her, as to my children, you are now to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you all to seek a father that will never fail you. And this we see what Joshua is doing. He's encouraging them and reminding people of the eternal faithfulness of the Lord and their responsibility to him as well. Notice in verse 2, he begins as he speaks as a prophet. And he said, thus said the Lord God of Israel. He is the mouthpiece of God. He speaks the oracles of God. And the first thing he does, he goes back to ancient history of Israel. Fitting in that place in Shechem. And he starts with Abraham and his father Terah. It was all of grace. The grace of God from the beginning to the ending. Sometimes, uh, and the Jews do this in particular, we make Abraham look like he was always a believer or that he he came out of a family of strong believers or some godly line. And that was not the case. They were the same idol-worshipping people as they dwelt amongst now, as they had seen in Egypt. Note the word served in verse 2. And served is many times used in this chapter. But they served other gods. As we do, isn't it? The question is, who do we serve? What God do we serve? In verse 3, God says, I took your father Abraham. I took. He did not one day come to his senses, figured out that these idols were worthless, empty or demonic, uh, made by human hands. God took him. Calvin writes, if we believe the words of the inspired writer we shall see that Abraham is no more exempted from the guilt of idolatry than Terah and Acre were. The calling of a people to himself started with the amazing grace of God. Abraham did not need a little bit of help. He did not need to make a slight adjustment as though he was on a good path already but needed to do a slight adjustment here and there. No, he was outside the family of God, and outside the kingdom of God. And if you think about it, that shows the depravity of men, isn't it? Because it was not that long after the flood. Abraham's father could have walked and talked with Noah. So you notice that apart from grace, that idolatry again spread over all the earth. And the calling of Abraham is the true testimony of every believer, is it not? It is the sure mercy and pleasure of God. So Abraham, the sinner, is called. Now keep in mind that Joshua here is speaking by the Spirit of God to make a case for Israel to serve the Lord, to worship Him, and to follow Him. So he highlights some of the dealings of God with Israel for their encouragement, but also for a warning. After he mentions the calling of Abraham, he mentions how God had led them, how he had multiplied his seed against all odds. Abraham and Sarah were old. Sarah was received when Sarah was old after many years of childlessness. And we all know that Abraham grew impatient. He decided to, to take matters in his own hand with Hagar. But the child of promise came to them. Later to Isaac two children was born. Also, Isaac married late, and those two children came after two decades. It's a long wait. Did not God promise that Abraham would have a lot of offspring as the sand of the sea? Just one child, Isaac, just two grandchildren, Jacob and Esau. In fact, to us it seems kind of a slow process, is it not? Ralph David writes, the Lord is not in a hurry. He's not working on our clock or calendar. He does what he promises, but sometimes so gradually that we don't see his faithfulness. This is the frequent way God operates, to be faithful in little and even little by little. It might help our faith if we would open our eyes more on the fact of God's faithfulness than the decree of God's faithfulness and its speed. We easily lose sight of what God has done by, by demanding too much too soon. He goes on about Esau, that Esau possessed Mount Seir. He got the land while Jacob and the children went into Egypt. So Esau enjoyed freedom of his own land. The covenant line went into slavery. God's ways are not our ways, isn't it? And his thoughts, not our thoughts. Yes, the people of God had to go through much hardships and pain and sufferings. Think of the treatment they had in Egypt for 400 years. God is not in a hurry. Yet God was there. He never forsook them. He never was caught off guard. Never was puzzled by the situations they were in. Again, the timetable is the Lord's and not our feeble senses and reasonings and our own logic. He goes on in the verse, we recall the amazing departure out of Egypt by the hand of his servant, Moses and Aaron. Look, he says in all these verses from 3 to 13, I took, I gave, I sent, I plagued Egypt. I brought you out. I destroyed. It's all on what God has done. Joshua wants them pressed on these people one more time that it is the Lord that does all these things. Don't ever be in doubt, he says. Who does all these things? Who gave you all these victories? He recalls the plagues in Egypt. Many of them humiliated the so-called gods and idols of Egypt, the God of the Nile, the weather, fertility, and so on, sun and moon. Jehovah showed Israel and Egypt that he is supreme in control over nature, life, and death. And eventually they would depart with silver and gold in their pockets out of Egypt. But God was not done displaying his great power, was he not? We read that in the psalm about the marvelous power of God. He brought Israel and Egypt one more time to its knees. They were trapped at the edge of the sea. They thought, unbelievingly, as they often did, and as we can do as well, that Pharaoh would take them back and that they would come home again as they saw the chariots coming, the dust rising in the distance. And how quickly did they turn on Moses? Why did you brought us out here? Were there not enough graves in Egypt for us to be buried in? Do we need to be buried here? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians. How prone they and we are to look at something, some difficulty, some turn of events and turn on God. We look no further than the temporal here and now. Beware, believer, of unbelief. It is a sin and it is an insult to God. It is ungratefulness to pass mercies given. God places us in situations, as he did then, of utter helplessness. So then you and me realize our total dependence on him. And it's often a mercy when we look back. Little did he... Israelites knew that God had one more time hardened the heart of Pharaoh. caused and stirred him up to bring up his armies, his chariots, and all his horsemen in great power. They, God departed the water. He used light and darkness to separate them and drew Pharaoh to the greatest trap of all time. In his hatred, Pharaoh was so oblivious to the miracle that happened in front of him that he went through the water anyway, until the walls came down. Pharaoh, often deified by the Egyptians, was brought to naught, and he died, and his carcass was floating somewhere in the water. The path in the ocean was life and the rescue for the Israel, but it became the grave of the Egyptians. At the end of verse 7, he mentions in passing, and ye dwelt in the wilderness a long time, by which he implies that God looked after you. He doesn't go in all the details, but we know what happened, the protection they received, the manna on a daily basis that they were supplied with, the quails, and so on. It would all still be fresh in their mind. In verses 8, 11, and 12, he puts them as he has done often in this book, once again to remembrance of all the battles that they won, some very recent, some even with the help of hornets. It was not your sword or your bow, Israel, God says. God was the active force behind him. He created the insects and they could be used against their enemy as he is Lord over them. Israel fought, to be sure. But their victories were always due to the arm of the Lord. You see that Joshua is coming to a point with all of these examples. He aims to contrast something. He gives them this brief survey of the nation, kind of like what, what Stephen did in the New Testament, and lets them know and see that God is at the center of everything. He is the mover of history, of hearts, of nature. It's all of grace. Why would you depart from him? Verses 9 and 10, he gives another example of the power of God. He is above the demonic forces that would come against them and us. The story is found in Numbers 22 to 24. You can read it at home. It's a great story. The kids should enjoy it. There's a talking donkey. There's the angel of the Lord, the stubborn king, and a great outcome. It's a great account. In summary, King Balak, he is the king of Moab. He saw what Israel was doing to the nations. They were one by one falling by the wayside and were slaughtered. And he hired a professional prophet, a professional occultist, a pagan worshiper, to place a curse on Israel. Apparently, he was quite good at it, for a price, of course. And long story short, a talking donkey from the Lord sets this so-called prophet straight. On the day that Balaam was supposed to curse Israel, King Balak was present, eager, of course, to see the downfall of Israel. What does he do? What comes out of his mouth? Numbers 24:4. He hath said, Which heard the words of God, which saw the vision of the Almighty, falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel. As the valleys, they are spread forth, as gardens by the riverside, as the trees of line alus, which the Lord hath planted, and the cedar trees beside the waters. He shall pour the water out from his buckets. His seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brought him forth out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. He shall eat up the nations, his enemies, and he shall break their bones and pierce them through with his arrows. He couched, he lay down as a lion, as a great lion, who shall stare him up? Blessed is he that blessed thee, and cursed is he that cursed thee. Well, Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he smote his hands together. And Balak said unto Balaam, I call thee to curse my enemies. And behold, thou hast altogether blessed them these three times. Here it shows the power of God, that nothing ever can or will oppose the Lord our God. We sang it this morning. Be still, my soul, be still, and consider who is on our side. Don't be moved by lesser lights and fleeting shadows, not to forsake the truth that we have heard. What Joshua is doing here with this survey, he is recalling the blessings of God. The Lord Jesus promises what we see here in Joshua, telling his people that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. All the power of Satan and men will not overcome it. It rests in his promises, in his faithfulness, and it will ever remain. What a comfort is that for? Believers. Yes, many things are against us. We fight against principalities and powers, against our own remaining wickedness, but no saint will ever be snatched out of the Savior's hand. He is that sure and steady anchor that we sung about. Will he fall at times? Yes, the saint will fall at times, but God will raise him up again. God will finish the work which he had begun as we see do him do with Israel. Lastly, in this survey, he reminds him again in verse 13 that you're now in this land, houses, vineyards, given by the gracious hand of God. If it hadn't become clear yet, it was not that they could boast in by their own hands. It was the gift of God. Thus, Israel has, through God's goodness, and without merit on its own, received a glorious land, a land which they had not worked for or slaves for. It was not an automatic, not a given. Like we sometimes deal with many of God's gifts in our life. We sort of think it's automatic. it's, it's We take it for granted. It was given by the Lord himself. And how much can we say that also, if we're saved by his grace from the Lord Jesus, from our sin, by the death of the Lord Jesus that we enjoy all the things that He gives us. He picked us out of the, the misery of sin and death. Upon the abundant grace and mercy are in Him. Grace upon grace, as John calls it in John 1 16. And recalling that, recalling the gospel, rethinking about the price that we were bought with, but more that is more than silver, precious silver and gold, does that not give us a heart of worship, a heart of thankfulness, a heart that is ready to get rid of idols and sins that so easily besets us? Having said all that, he comes to the point of all this, having laid out the faithfulness of God, his power over nature, nations, satanic forces, reminding them by many infallible proofs of which many could say, yes, I was there, we saw it, they would have tasted it personally and seen it and felt it. He says in verse 14, Now therefore, I put this freshly in your minds by the Holy Spirit, you have no excuse of being ignorant. Now therefore, fear the Lord, not a paralyzing dread, but a reverent and holy awe, and serve him in sincerity and truth. He calls for a logical, logical, and singular commitment from them in verses 14 and 15. Apparently, somehow, after all the goodness shown to them, there were still among them some pre-Abrahamic gods, some Egyptian gods. He calls for them to be put away. How extensive it was, we don't know. Perhaps it wasn't a full-blown worship or serving them. Maybe... They kept them in their closet, maybe as an insurance. The occasional look, lucky charm, lucky rabbit, whatever they call it, that type of idea. To whatever the extent was, it was serious because he mentions it to them. They needed to make a choice and say once and for all where they stood. What God they would serve. And which, they, which way they would go when Joshua departs whose slave they would be. is used many times in this chapter, 12, 13 times. It's interesting that this is used instead of believe. Believe on him. They already did that. But perhaps by using this term, Joshua wants them to know how serious it is. Matthew Henry writes, You must choose. If not Yahweh, then ye must pick from these dunghill of deities. Joshua is saying here, and he makes a bit of a mockery of the choice. He's presenting for them about these other gods. After he has just recalled about the goodness of God, he says, well, who are you going to serve, these powerless deities or the God of history? As for me and my house, Joshua, we will serve the Lord. And they had seen that in Joshua. Steadfast, warm, caring example of that all his life. First himself, but also in his home, in his household. How important it is if we want others to follow, especially our immediate family, our children, to see that they see in us a steadfast faith, sacrificial serving, loving God and his people. Joshua is not giving out commands that he had not done himself all his life. And Israel had much respect for him. Now you see in the response in the people. Verse 17 and 18. They are a little bit offended. At Joshua. For even suggesting this choice. Why on earth would he do that? Joshua. Perhaps wanted them to really think. To really put the choices in front of them. God doesn't share allegiance with other gods. And how ridiculous the other gods were. God is a jealous God. First commandment. The Lord Jesus repeats it. He really presses them to a full commitment and a total surrender to God that got him there in the first place. Yes, they give a good response. Verse 16 to 18. They too recall what God has done in the past. And yes, they say, we will serve God just like you did, Joshua. Now, you would think that we'd be welcomed by Joshua with open arms. Sounds good, sounds orthodox. Would it not be wise for Joshua to get the deal done, to call it good? Ralph Davis says, but Joshua does something no decision loving evangelist would ever do to Israel's we too. He opposes and says, you cannot. If Israel gives herself to Yahweh, it must be a cautious commitment. Joshua said unto the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is an holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression nor your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods. Then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you after he has done you good. Joshua is not trying to be difficult here or to confuse him or to make it difficult to come to the Lord. He's not being unreasonable, as though the Lord is, is hard to come to. But Joshua knows fully well, and it was in his memory, that after the Pharaoh had drowned in the waters, all of them sung that great song. I will sing unto the Lord, for he had triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he's become my salvation. He is my God and I will prepare him an habitation. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Oh they all sung very enthusiastically, didn't they? Sometimes we do that too. And one commentator made note of that. You know, we sing songs and I go like, ooh, they kind of make a liar out of me or a hypocrite. They sound so good. We sing them like they did after this great event. But these same people, not too long afterward, would, do, would demand from Aaron to make him gods with the silver and the gold that they got out of Egypt. And they'll be singing and dancing to a golden calf very shortly after. He is telling them, beware that you don't do this out of your own self. Because you cannot serve the Lord out of your own self. You're too weak for that. And he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. If you indeed have these idols there, which they didn't deny, repent of it. Get rid of it. Or otherwise, the power of God that has shown you so much good will now come against you and will be used to condemn you. Think about Israel, he says to them, when you make this promise that you cannot keep, know your own feebleness, your own proneness to take your own way. Take heed, he says, if you think you stand lest you fall. The God of Israel is a faithful groom, He is jealous of his bride. He will not tolerate other gods or idols among you. And of course, he would have known these people for a very long time. He would have seen that some of them had one foot in the Canaanite temple and the other in the temple of God. By reminding them they cannot serve God, he reminds them that they need divine help. On their own, they would run headlong, to the idols of Egypt and other gods. And we have the same warning in the New Testament, isn't it? The Lord Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or else he hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. He also says, If any man come after me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. And he gives example of a fellow that is intending to build a tower. And if he doesn't sit down and count all the cost and cannot finish it, how bad does it look and how he will be mocked? Oh, let us properly present Christ to those outside of him and those that are his already, the demands that he makes on us, that we may count the cost of following him, and that we be reminded of who it is we serve and what price that he has bought us with and what he demands from us. Joshua and Christ, by answering in this way, are not hoping to drive people away from the Lord, but making them aware of their own weakness, hope that it would draw closer to him, that we can pray, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, you started a good work in me, and I trust you will finish it. Lord, you only have the words of life. Help me to believe it, to live by it, for without it, we perish. And throughout this book, we have often seen, and I think I've highlighted it, that paradox of what God does a man's responsibility. Grace that they received and the work they had to do. They had to fight with all their might. And yet, it was the Lord that fought for them. And here we see that again. Serve, 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 he says. And Joshua says, you cannot serve. In verse 21, the people persist in what they said earlier. And once again, they said, we will serve God. Having counted the cost and considered it, perhaps, they said, we will serve the Lord. Joshua believes them and tells them as they are a witness against themselves in this proclamation. He believes what they say. He tells them if their commitment is real, then get rid of the strange gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. Let's see some evidence of this. Putting away strange gods would be an outward sign, a visible sign. And the inclining of the heart, of course, was something that no one can see. It's an inward sign, but it would result in fruits. These two go together together. Putting away sins, it must always be going together with a heart that inclines to the Lord. Psalm 119, 34. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my own heart. That's a prayer, isn't it? Make me go in the path of thy commandments, for therein I do delight. Incline my heart to thy testimonies, and not to covetousness. the psalmist prays, you know, incline my heart because normally it goes the other way, as we can all testify of. In verse 24, for the third time they confirm that they will serve and listen to the Lord's voice. Joshua is now satisfied. He writes these words in the book of the law so it could be remembered with his place in the side of the ark. And for old time's sake, there's yet Another stone monument, and we have seen many in this book. Imagine taking your kids, if you live there, out to the local Israelites' parks a few decades after these events. Everywhere there will be reminders and monuments that marked the event of the entrance into the land. Some were monuments of great battles, great victories, the water parting. There was that heap of stones. There was Achan's grave, a more sobering monument. And now here in Shechem, they were there as a visible lesson for the people of Israel, of the power and the might and the holiness and the faithfulness of God, the God of Israel. It was the seventh memorial, the number of perfection. The stone was witness. It said he personifies the stone of all that they said. He said, he's hurt you. The stone has hurt you. And it would stand out against them as a witness or as a, a recall for their memory of what they had said. And it was placed under the oak, verse 26. Many years before, in Genesis 35, we see an account of a, a reformation happening in Jacob's house. He's asked to put away the false gods that are in his home, which he does, and he takes them and he buries them under an oak here in in Shechem. Now oaks live for a long time. I'm not saying it is the same oak, but it may be. So sins come to an end at this place, and are expected to be killed. And promises were made, and by God's grace, promises were. Were kept, and Joshua asked him to do the same thing. And some things will never change, isn't it? This side of eternity, we war against the flesh, and every age will have its own temptations. Every season of life will have its own temptations. But the question still remains: Is it God or self who will will be serving? Who are you serving? Christ or self. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter six, sixteen. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Sin makes us servants of it, and it will never be enough. It's a terrible and miserable taskmaster. When Israel recalled the past goodness of God, they willingly, each person had to decide for themselves to surrender themselves to Him afresh. His God was worthy to be surrendered to, body and soul, heart and hands, if they would just scan back of all that He had done. Will not, if we're believers here this morning, will not the memory of what the Lord Jesus did for us on the cross, His suffering, His victory, make us ponder anew our service to him who has bought us such great a price. Paul, in the book of Romans, after he's nearly done, after he exclaimed all the greatness of the gospel, the freeness, the total forgiveness in Christ, adoption, sanctification, imputed righteousness. What does he say in Romans 12, verse 1? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy unto God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and what is acceptable and perfect will of God. Similar did Joshua, right? He looked back, Paul looked back, and he said, Well, what is the reasonable response? now you have all this it is your service and dedication to God for ye are bought with a price and we are not our own may we examine ourselves this morning of course sanctification does not come unless we are justified first if we turn those around we will be most miserable but if we are justified there must be a clear signs of sanctification and growth service and a life yielded to God. When Paul considered all the riches that he had in Christ, all that he had given up, his bloodline, his status, his learning, all that he had, he said I counted all but dung, its loss, for the excellency of knowing Christ, and became a most worthy servant of him. On Easter morning, and throughout all the Gospels, we read of the triumph and the victory of another stone, don't we? A stone that the builders had rejected. A stone that Isaiah had prophesied long ago. And the Lord Jesus had referred to it as by himself. Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, meaning watch, pay attention, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, A precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and that he that believeth shall not make haste. He is the stone of all stones, one that the Lord has laid himself. He is the beloved of the Father, sent by him. He is sure in purpose and in strength, and durableness and effectiveness. This stone was tried by Satan, by temptations, by the forces of hell, and attacked by his own people. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But this stone did not crack, or was ground to powder, or showed any flaws. Even though the people rejected this stone, they buried him, put a gravestone in front of him, thinking that they could keep him there. And upon this stone, all his people's sin were laid. The wrath of God was poured upon him. And for his people, he becomes a precious cornerstone, that foundational stone of faith, of joy and peace, and eternal comfort, that rock of ages, that rock that we must and we can build our life upon. Peter repeats it. He says, Behold, or he says, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He that believeth on him shall not be confounded or put to shame. On what, on who, are you building your life this morning? Is it stones that will be pulverized, that will crack eventually, Or is it the precious cornerstone, the Lord Jesus? Are you a servant of the great king, if that's the case? Are you serving him? And how is that shown? May the Lord give us grace to answer that honestly and from the heart. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you again for the reminder of the great gospel Father we see in this chapter many times Joshua calls the people to serve Lord I pray that we be like that that we be a willing heart and mind that are so thankful for what you have plucked us out of that there's no other response than to say yes we will serve we will believe we will put our trust In this great storm. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.